Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm an editor and a writer. For my latest conversation about movies, I was so happy to be joined by Soraya Nadja McDonald, culture critic for The Undefeated. I had read Soraya's terrific work as a fan before having the pleasure of publishing her as editor of Film Comment. Soraya has a way of tying together different arts and issues with an illuminating clarity that feels effortless. On this episode, we began by talking about The Women, the 1939 George Cukor classic, along with its 2008 remake. That led us to a discussion of stardom, Jennifer Lopez, and eventually the 2005 movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Finally, I asked Soraya about Lovecraft Country, the TV series, since she also writes about television. Here's our conversation. Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. Uh, this is a personal podcast project I have uh, to keep me out of trouble, just uh, nattering on about some movies I've seen. Um, but even better, listening to other people hold forth brilliantly on what they've been watching. And I'm really happy um, to have a special guest today. Let's give a big welcome to Soraya Nadia McDonald. Yay! Thank you for having me. <laughs> burr, 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 air horns. <laughs> That's good. I should have air, air horns. <laughs> it's so nice to talk to you again about film. <laughs> yes, good to talk to you as well. Um, it's been uh, it's been a yeah a long summer. Um, oh man! But yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, it's it's been it's been I mean it's been great from from afar to kind of read all your work going through the summer. Um, and I just want to say I don't know I hope it's not embarrassing, but I uh, I do want to just remind uh, everyone that now it's, I don't know like was this in May? Um, oh man! Sorry, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yes, uh, Soraya was was um, uh, a finalist for uh, the Pulitzer Prize in criticism. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh God, I'm blushing so hard right now. <laughs> I have to make, well, cause I have this philosophy that like when some, when something, you know, great happens like that, I'm really just going to make it last. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, why not? Like so many things are just thrown at us every day. So um, I don't know. That's it's true. Important. Important to mention that. So that's, it's a happy. Yeah. Happy this time. It's a weird year to have like, nice things happen to you mm. because yeah. because so many things are are so awful <laughs> you yeah. know it's just like man like why why couldn't this have happened in like 2009 when everybody was like happy together <laughs> yeah <laughs> or like 2015 <laughs> but you know it's nice when people say nice things about you even yeah. if it feels yeah. like embarrassing <laughs> at the same time <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i guess you know it kind of bur- burns brighter in a way when when uh, everything else is kind of the way it is That's yeah i mean i've been you know like lately i've just been taking joy in like small stuff you know like yeah it's just nice to see kids on the playground again like outside my apartment because for a while like the gates were locked and there just weren't any and it was just it just looks so sad man yeah it looks like you were always looking at the the B roll on a on a news program about like yes <laughs> you know like that's ex- exactly it we gotta we gotta take some joy where we can find it which I think is probably why when you reached out to me about this because normally of course 
I would have sort of like these serious films in mind. And then I was like, let's talk about the women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I think I actually needed something like sort of light and frothy. And, and frankly, like, it's just, it's full of all these like bitchy asides <laughs> that are just like so masterfully delivered. <laughs> I was yeah. like, Oh, I actually really needed this. Yeah, no, that's that's the that's a perfect movie for for right now. It's it's been way too long since since I've 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 seen it. Okay, so it's like Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, and Rosalind Russell. But basically, it's this movie that was based on a play written in 1936 by Claire Booth Luce. So it's about this woman named Mary Haynes, um, who is sort of like this dutiful wife who basically like finds out that her husband is cheating on her with a shop girl um, in this like fancy ladies department store in Manhattan. Right. And so she has this circle of friends and her friends find out before she does. So like for like a portion of the movie, you're sort of dealing with like Mary knowing independently and her friends know but they don't know that the other knows, right? <laughs> Which just sets up like some of these like wonderfully just comedic scenes, particularly when they decide to go back to, you know, this fancy department store where the mistress works, where Stephen, Stephen Haynes is the is the husband. Um, and the mistress's name is played by Joan Crawford is Crystal Allen. <laughs> Part of the fun of like watching this is just sort of like going back to this like time capsule. And you see like how these sort of rich, well-to-do women lived, you know, in the Manhattan of like the 1930s, where you go to a department store and you have, you know, not only is there like a personal shopper, but like the dressing rooms there are really like lounges, (laughs) You know, like you come in and like someone takes your fur coat, you know, a model like struts out like this. This is so hilarious to me because literally there's a scene where like this model comes out and she's like, you know, like this is the the latest like ladies support wear. And she's like zips up the back and no bones. Um, (laughs) And so she just keeps repeating that over and over. And she's like pops into like. So the other thing is that she keeps popping into the dressing rooms. Like she doesn't knock first or anything. She just like opens the door and she's like, this is the latest, you know, like whatever it is. Um, zips up the back, no bones. And then she like pops back out and then she goes to another dressing room. <laughs> she's like a walking, walking, talking, like a- advertising man. Yes! <laughs> so like, it's just, you sort of just get plopped into this into this world of, you know, these like high society rich ladies and their, you know, rich lady problems. <laughs> yeah. I think like one of the things that this movie is actually sort of like seriously looking at, even though it's it's a comedy, is just how much like these women and their lives and the lives of their children are so tied to being dependent on their husbands. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean they they're barely people, right? This is like 19 years after women's suffrage is finally recognized by the Constitution. <laughs> and it's so true, yeah. it's just, yeah, it's, you know, in some ways it's like a completely different universe. And, you know, it's, of course, 
the adaptation is, you know, you could say limited in certain ways because it has to be acceptable for the Hayes Code, mm-hmm. um, which in some ways, I think, you know, like, obviously, like, we don't like censorship, right? But um, one of the things that, like, the restrictions of the Hayes Code ends up doing is forcing the screenwriters um Anita Luz and Jane Murphan to be like really creative in in the things that they're trying to communicate, but can't say explicitly. Mm-hmm. It's really witty. And the thing I realized, like why there were so many gay men in my life who sort of like looked at this film as so iconic is because it is just like every scene is just filled with just the most amazing shade. <laughs> like these women just know how to deliver the most withering insults with the most innocent of expressions. <laughs> right, right. And I was just like, oh, this is fantastic. One of the other things I realized about this, the majority of the film is in black and white, but then there is this like fashion show scene where these models basically are assembled and are like showing off the latest styles um, that's entirely in color. Oh, And it's yeah. the only part. I was like, oh, is this what Spike Lee was calling back to in She's Gotta Have It when you have, right? Which is also all black and white, but it has sort of that beautiful... MGM musical dance sequence. Oh yeah. I feel like I need to like I I will be the first to admit that like my knowledge of sort of golden age Hollywood films is not as as extensive as I would like it to be. Um you know, like I I know enough to be able to sort of pick up on and kind of obvious references and tropes. You know, like there's I don't know if you've seen Blackest King on on Disney Plus, the new I still haven't I, I Beyonce film. But there's like this one scene where she basically is like dressed up as as Esther Williams. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and is surrounded by like a bevy of synchronized swimmers, except they're all black. <laughs> and it's like it's just delightful. Yeah, there's just something like with that kind of synchronized dance and, and Oh, know. it's gorgeous. Like when you just think back to like the filmmaking that was taking place, particularly when you have these musicals and you're looking at like what people could do with their bodies in one take. Mm, mm-hmm. It's incredible. I mean, it makes sense. Like when you're coming out of the vaudeville era and you're basically like transitioning like first into silent films and then into, you know, into the talkies you know, and you see the sort of evolution um, of filmmaking and and what people are doing. And like, as you're doing that, you also see sort of a lot of the, the skill that they, that some of these folks learned from the stage that they're bringing with them Mm -hmm. to film. Like, it's just, they just don't make them like that anymore. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, you think about the all the different kinds of training that a person would have had to have and they would have had to been able everyone had to be like a jack of all trades like you had to know how to sing you had to know how to dance you had to yeah. know this kind of thing you had to know that um and you brought that whole kind of toolkit with you um if that was your your, your background i mean you think of someone like i don't know like barbara stanwick or something you know mm-hmm. i mean she's always gonna have a, a certain 
appreciation for a certain type of showbiz drama, but she gives it a real like sincerity. Um, but yeah. you know, obviously she she was on the stage at one point and was was a dancer, and so you know, even it even can inform what she plays because if she's playing like you know other there are a couple other movies at least a couple where she plays like a chorus girl who you know is is just right. trying to make make a go of things and it's i mean she's kind of lived that a little bit and and rising through her her grit and talent which i mean and then i mean you know you mentioned moving from silence to talk is i also feel like that's somehow um, you can bring interesting skills from one into the other and oh, you know because yeah. you, you mentioned joan crawford Mm-hmm. And she's just such a like warrior of like different ages of cinema. Right? Man, she hung on. <laughs> yeah. Good for good for Joan. <laughs> she really did. Yeah. I mean, and I I don't know. I I again, yeah. I mean, I have to I have to see the women again. It's been it's been a while. But I I just always been fascinated. And other people have said it's better. But how she she just always managed to kind of like retool and, and reuse just her like strength of presence and the kind of, of just of just her eyes and her gaze and the intensity and just to be able to amp things up, and, but also a light charm that she can kind of mm-hmm. s- switch into. Um, She's a movie star. In a word. Yeah, exactly. You know, Johnny Guitar, uh, Nicholas Ray oh. movie she did. Oh, it's so, it's so great. I just feel like she's like drawing upon a couple decades of just like ardor. And, oh, I need and, to and, watch and, that. And, and that's, that's one where color is foremost. It's like a Nicholas Ray movie she played. She runs this bar that's like hewn out of rock or something. And she has this like long, like on again, off again romance with Sterling Hayden. Oh, wow. um, and... Yeah, and then, I don't know, she gets into this dispute, and it's all, like, color-coded, and then she just has this, at one point, just, like, her dress catches on fire. It's just, like, you know, (laughs) it's, like, (laughs) capable of, like, spontaneous combustion or something. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Oh, I gotta watch that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Johnny Guitar is, is just... One was just my favorite. It might actually, I think that might actually be on Amazon. I'm always surprised what Amazon Prime has. What's what's her performance like in 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 the women? I, I... Oh, it's so fun because she's, um, you know, because she is playing Crystal Allen. Like she is playing, you know, the interloper, um, in the Haynes marriage, and like, and she's just she's having like so much fun, like being the spoiler you know she she has her jungle red nail polish and i mean i think one of the things about the character about crystal allen is that so when like mary haynes and her friends basically come up um and they go to this department store and they are they are seeking this woman like because they know her name but they don't know what she looks like. And so they're trying to find her. Like there's lots of innuendo that, that she's basically, um, Oh, you must know so many rich gentlemen, you know, who come in to like buy things. Um, And she just gives as good as she gets, but she also like, you know, she has this one scene after, like, if we're just sort of going to like fast forward through the plot, um, Mm -hmm. basically like Stephen decides to leave his wife, uh, for Crystal, 
you know, and so, and he's basically like set up a new household. Um, and so there's this scene with her in the bathtub of the new house. And I think it's like this Lucite bathtub, right? Like it's like clear. And so you can see like the water line and then where the suds are. And it's, it's just so like ridiculously decadent and fancy. <laughs> and she has like a landline telephone in the bathroom with her so that she can talk to like her other suitors <laughs> that came along before Steven. <laughs> uh, of <course>. <laughs> Even just the line of like the telephone is like wrapped in fabric so that she can have it like in the bathtub with her. It's just delightful. <laughs> everything, everything fig- figured out. I love the the way that you can sort of see how Joan Crawford like thinks about herself. Mm both like as as a movie star and like what she brings to the screen and how that like carries out into the rest of her life because you know she's one of those women who basically you know up until I want to say almost up until she died or at least when she stopped going out in public like she Mm -hmm. was very conscious of being like of having a public right of being like a famous person and of being like this image of glamour um, and she played that up, you know, basically in sort of her public performance of celebrity in a way that, you know, you don't really see very often anymore. Yeah. Watching this film now, um, you know, that I'm in my mid thirties, like you just get something different from it than you do maybe when you're watching it, like in your twenties. I mean, there's this one line where, Mary is talking to her mother um, and she's trying to figure out what she's going to do about her marriage, Um, you know, and her mom is basically telling her like, oh, well, you know, like women have all of these outlets and like you can change your hair, you can change your style, whatever, you know, when you're feeling, when when you're in a mood. Um, And she says, I'm going to see if I can try to do that, that mid-Atlantic like movie (laughs) accent. I probably... I probably can't, but I'm going to try. A man had one escape for himself to see a different self in the mirror of some woman's eyes. (laughs) But she's basically just like, like you have all of these outlets, you know, for Mm. your emotions. And yet if you're a man, it's basically, you know, and and you start having problems with your ego and you start feeling crappy about yourself. Like you just go and find some woman to, to basically make you feel better about yourself. That's really interesting because I mean that kind of flips flips the the, the view of the the power balance there or the, or, the, or the view of the autonomy there in a way. Yeah, and I think like, and Joan definitely plays Crystal as a woman who understands that. Like, she very much understands why men are coming to her specifically, and so she's exuding this sort of not just like sultriness but danger. Mm. You know, the allure of this sort of particular feminine danger uh, that that you would come to expect from a woman who who dares to wear jungle red uh, nail polish. <laughs> <laughs> a kingdom will be won and lost because of jungle red. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, um, but, you know, like, I actually saw the 1939 version 
after I'd seen the 2008 remake that had like Meg Ryan and Annette Benning and Jada Pinkett Smith and Deborah Messing um, and Eva Mendes as the Crystal Allen character. Mm. When you see the 2008 version alone, you're just like, well, this is kind of silly. You know, because it's just like, why are the, first of all, like, why are all these women like so obsessed with men and marriage? And even though it's updated, and particularly Annette Benning's character is, is this like hyper-focused sort of career woman, it just doesn't quite pack the same punch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the sort of withering retorts that that make the 1939 version sing so much just aren't quite there in the same way, you know, particularly like just the way the actresses relate to each other in scenes. I will say like the one person who I feel like actually seems to bring the spirit of the original film to the 2008 version is Cloris Leachman, who Ooh. plays Mary's mother. Oh, wow. Like she, I was like, well, of course, Clor- of course it's Cloris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah right because like she's she's actually lived through several eras of right. you know, of filmmaking as they were talking about before with joan crawford she gets it she gets it yeah although you know the other thing that i'm thinking about now butterfly mcqueen has this really like tiny part in the women um because she's one of like the shop girls but she is you know it's not a major role and you know the story is basically it's about like rich white women in manhattan and in the 2008 version, you have Eva, who's playing the mistress, you know, this this group of women, um, aside from Jada, is all white women. And, you know, these tropes of, of the gold digger who is looking for some successful husband to sort of dig her nails into, you know, and entrap for herself, end up sort of carrying on a different tenor even though like Eva I will say you know she's kind of doing a lot of the same work that Joan was doing in the original where she's you know she's carrying herself as this sort of like self-possessed self-assured like sexy woman who's like I know what I got and I know how to work it but at the same time like when I look back now particularly like when I think about the way Latinas have been have been marginalized in Hollywood, I started thinking about it in a different way, particularly because like, like I started thinking about Jennifer Lopez and I don't know how much you remember about when Jennifer Lopez was with Ben Affleck and they almost got married. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like he was in that music video that she did and they're like on a boat together and he's like rubbing oil on her body. And then like, he, you know, he makes sure he gets like a big handful of booty. Cause like, that was like at the time, like that was all everybody was talking about was the fact that like Jennifer Lopez had an ass. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, but there was also a, this undercurrent of like resentment for her that I did not, really understand at the time or or like where it was coming from right um particularly you know because i think ben had dated like hadn't he dated like gwyneth paltrow at one point you know and then of course like he ends up being married to jennifer garner you know and he and 
And Matt Damon, of course, you know, they made like their huge splash with Goodwill Hunting. And they were, you know, like they were the two like hot actors of their era for for a good few years. Um, which also meant that they were, in terms of just sort of like their stock as like eligible bachelors, right. <laughs> um, was really high. Um, you know, and so then you've got like this Puerto Rican woman who comes along and manages to snag, you know, like because we have this like hierarchy of race in America that just never goes away. It's just ever present, you know, and who manages to sort of snag um, someone, you know, who's as much of an A-lister as Ben Affleck. And there is just so much obsession with, I mean, I think we would have been obsessed we're just sort of obsessed with like the sort of romantic lives of celebrities anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think part of it had to do with this idea of Jennifer Lopez being sort of foreign and this idea that like, this was not necessarily like a relationship of equals because Ben Affleck wasn't dating someone like Gwyneth Paltrow, who's basically, you know, who comes from sort of this lineage of Hollywood royalty because of who her father is Mm -hmm. and her mother, it's never sort of like explicitly expressed, but you can, you can sort of like pick up on the tinges of this, (laughs) that maybe, you know, Jennifer Lopez is kind of, she's, she's kind of stepping out of line, especially because you know, I think he and Matt had sort of like thought of themselves and kind of presented themselves as like these sort of like artsy indie guys almost, you know, who had like written this screenplay and like didn't take themselves too seriously. And then he starts dating Jennifer Lopez and all of a sudden like his just outward appearance is much more polished and, you know, she's got him wearing all these expensive clothes and like... (laughs) She she's basically like civilized him, <laughs> you know. But at the time, it was it was sort of like she sort of infected him with with everything that comes with sort of this embrace of of new money. Um, you know, she's made him gauche. I mean, I guess at that point, she had she had um, accomplished a lot in music, and I, right. So that was like another kind of coded strand. I for some reason I'm 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 remembering like a New York magazine cover that the cover was Nueva York instead of New York. (laughs) But yeah, so like when you look so when I look back at like the two thousand eight version of the women now, part of that is sort of like in my mind as I'm Mm -hmm. looking at this at Eva Mendez, you know, sort of playing the spoiler, you know, to this sort of like innocent uh, white lady's life. It's interesting to think how they assembled their particular like constellation of stars for that moment um, in, in, in right. 2008, you know, and so who's lining up with with which original actor? So Eva Mendez would have been Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford, right. Meg yeah. Ryan is uh, is Mary Haynes. So, she, so she's um, Norma Shearer. And then, of course, you have the uh, the woman who's basically sort of going back and forth between both women, um, you know, who's managed to, uh, who's sort of like the gossip 
between the two of them and in the original right that's Rosalind Russell who I adore she is the only name that I recognize I love Rosalind Russell so much yeah she's so good <laughs> and um in the 2008 version that's Annette ah right okay well sorry I'm kind of jumping all over is, is there also a case where there was a bit of somehow fatigue from um like sex in the city at the time Ooh, um, um, not fatigue with it but but just that that had so like mined that yeah. kind of relationship and, and mm-hmm. friendships that maybe is why some producers yes. thought the women it's time to bring the women back you know i could totally see that and i think the reason that the 2008 version does not work is because because of the absence of camp it's mm. just way too sincere how interesting in a way that that the 1939 version is not, in part because of the Hayes Code, <laughs> right? Right, because you you have to work a little harder to get to to get to the insults and to get to the jokes. <laughs> right, you need to have a way to, to put it across. <laughs> I don't I don't know if this is the the, the moment to um, mention something I saw. For some reason, I watched Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes. From versus 2005, so sort of similar, you know, time. In keeping with the adultery theme of this podcast episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, sort of tabloid, you know, fodder relationships. I mean, that's sort of, I guess, ground zero for that? Yeah, and know. movie stars. And movie stars, yeah, exactly. So what's funny to me is that so Angelica Jade Bastian, who is the film critic, um, actually, no, she does more than just film. because She does television, too. But she's a critic at Vulture, uh, who I adore, recently like wrote a piece about Brad and Angelina as like that particular sort of old school movie star couple that mm. just does not really exist in the same way now. Yeah. Um. And, you know, and then she she live tweeted the film and like, but one of the fun things about that, you know, is that basically like we all get to sort of like time travel back 15 years. I can't even <laughs> believe it's been that long to 2005. And I saw someone like someone uh, had said that like when they were doing the press tour for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they basically just were not allowed to do press together because their chemistry was just like so just bouncing off the walls horny (laughs) (laughs) and so there are like so few clips of them so they couldn't do press unless there were like there was another cast member or someone else from the film with them They needed a chaperone, basically. They needed a chaperone to sort of deflect. <laughs> because at the time, Brad was still with Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> I don't know if you, I don't know, like, how much you sort of, like, took this in. But that W Magazine spread that they did is, like, forever seared into my memory. Because it's such a gorgeous set of photographs. But also, they're all, like, staged during, like, this mid-century Palm Springs kind of setting. Hmm. 
And so it looks so much like what we've come to sort of like love about Mad Men. Like it's that aesthetic. Because, oh God, what is, I think the title of it is what, like Domestic Bliss or something? Yep. Domestic Bliss, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt at home. And the, the hilarious thing is that like, they had not sort of like, they were not like formally acknowledging like their relationship at this point. But there's like this entire photo spread of them as this sort of like nuclear family with like gorgeous children and you know that's yeah that yeah that is pretty uh bold is that the word i don't know i, I think that's the only way you can <laughs> yeah yeah that movie was it's, it's always been kind of in the back of uh of my head meaning to like revisit it i i just been always somehow fascinated by possibilities about if it's its story you know uh, yeah the, the couple who each of them secret secret assassins basically um, mm-hmm. and have hidden it from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all this kind of staged setting, um, but they haven't admitted it to each other. And um, actually, I remember at the time, Film Comment had an article by Stanley Cavell about the movie as an example of a comedy of remarriage, um, you know, mm. in reference to things like. The awful truth, you know, with with um, right uh, Cary Grant and I, Irene Irene Dunn, um, and in this case, this is like a modern, and it it really made sense to me, but it's 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 also just interesting in terms of yeah the artifice of their of their domestic bliss and the intensity yeah. of it. Yeah, because there's that one line in the film right when they finally realize like who what and who the other person is and they've decided that they're gonna like stick it out anyway and brad says we're gonna have to redo every conversation we've ever had right yeah i mean on on that level it just becomes i I found it kind of what's the word i mean there's if there's a weird you know obviously it's done in this comic book style like as an action movie Mm -hmm. it's it's watching it was it was really strange because they focus so much on two of them because they're stars mm-hmm. that you, you don't even always know where any bullets are coming from or like they're just like in a state yeah. of fighting. Yes. It's, it's a very strange staging uh, compared to a lot of action films where like you're sort of cutting between different things. So then you're just there and they're like bullets whizzing around them and they're shooting bullets right. off frame. Um, yeah. so it's, it's like, it's just a portrait of conflict um, and not even, and uh, just action. It's, it's, it's kind of re- remarkable. And I remember like just loving that film when it came out. Like it was just so fun and sexy. And then like when I watch it like several years into my career as a critic, like all I can see is like, actually this doesn't quite work. <laughs> I know. Like you see all the things that don't quite work that you were able to sort of like paper over when you weren't watching it critically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, also just seeing it at a 15 year remove, like, you know, we were just talking about stars and how stars look from a distance in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I, I, I had to, I, it's so funny. You, you reminded me of the um, W magazine spread because I had to kind of like reconstruct in my head exactly where each of them were, was, was at at that time and, yeah. and how scenes that maybe now felt kind of, I don't want to say flat, but just like there's a joke here that I'm not in on somehow. Mm-hmm. And the the joke basically is there are these stars 
playing this kind of ironic marriage, you know, that, right. that kind of like a, I mean, not to the extent of like Ocean's Eleven, but like sort of getting there. But yeah, um, yeah. You know, um, and that's something I kind of had to like, you know, it's as if I was watching something from the 70s, like a disaster movie from the 70s and I had to remind myself, you know, <laughs> what all these stars were doing in this movie and, and why right. it sounded particularly tragic that, I don't know, why Charlton Heston in like um, Soylent Green, why does that feel especially poignant when he's playing that character in the early 70s mm-hmm. or Kirk Douglas mm-hmm. in De Palma's Fury, you know, like there's yeah. like the extra layer going on yeah. in there. And in this case, it's, you know, Brangelina in the making. Right. Um, it's, it's also just like a really just like luscious or lustrously, it's, it's, it's absurdly like something luxuriant about it because they live in like a yeah they're in like connecticut right (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah they're living like in a staged home yeah everything around them is sort of bland and waspy she drives it she's like i'm the suburban housewife right like i should be the one driving the minivan (laughs) yeah i also love that she's just like clearly better at him than (laughs) you know there's so many like fun mo- moments to just pull out from that. Like when she's, you know, when they're in the basement and they're like trying to figure out how they're going to escape if the house blows up and they're like going through their ammunition and she's like, why do I get the girl gun? It's yeah. just, it's just of a particular moment that is 2005 that definitely it has aged, you know, like yeah. it doesn't necessarily feel like a modern sort of like, couples action movie anymore it seems when that sort of movie happens now it's it's the the irony is more based upon how lame the couple is like not you know i mean right. like, yeah you know, like it's it's like steve carell and tina fey each of whom i yes. love in a particular way but it's that that's what's happening mm-hmm. or like will ferrell and we don't know how to do anything oopsie right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah the way they relate to each other in that movie, like the way they deliver their lines, you know, when they're like flying down the highway, when Brad's character is like, well, I was married before. And Angelina's like, what's her name and social security number? And he's like, <laughs> no, you're not going to kill her. Like, <laughs> it's just fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing about that though, I don't know that we could, sort of enjoy that film without any guilt or Mm. any discussion of sort of like domestic violence (laughs) and i'm like but it but they're trying to kill each other because they're spies right (laughs) like they're not um but you do have to i mean you almost have to have angelina be the one who comes out on top otherwise you know, like that shot where he's basically like, you don't see her and you don't see it happening. Um, but you see his foot sort of kicking into her side. Yeah. As much as like, I hate the, I feel like it's so overused and it, people rarely like are specific about it. Like I can just see people being like, oh, that's so problematic. <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 so so good you mentioned that scene because I I remember that uh, that's that struck me you know because yeah they have like I don't forget if it's like a mattress that's been overturned or a couch uh-huh. so you just see him 
kicking, you know, at, at us and you can't see that she's lying there. And yeah, it's not going to play the same way. And in a way that that's, they probably couldn't even show that and still be yeah. the kind of movie they want to toss off, you know? Yeah. I mean, even when you think about, I mean, we still have those conversations now, you know, I remember, you know, only a few weeks ago that Netflix released the old guard, mm-hmm. which I think people, you know, it got a overwhelmingly like positive reception, but like one of the few sort of objections that I did see to it on social media was just how much Kiki Lane like got the shit beat out of her, right. <laughs> you know, even though she's got this magical ability to, to heal over and over again, like, you know, there, there's always going to be someone and I'm not going to say that this is, this isn't valid, you know, but who sees, you know, a black woman taking abuse on screen and finds it just very difficult to watch, even though we know, you know, in real life, she's okay. And even though we know like the character has this superhuman ability to, to heal and is not going to die. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely, um, you know, it's unnerving and, and disturbing because just, a function or a byproduct of the science fiction conceit there is that it erases pain. Right. Uh, And I mean, if you think about that for a second, yeah, it becomes especially disturbed because then it's just like, because a a certain experience is, is, is banished through Mm -hmm. through that. And and it becomes this play playpen in a way for for violence. violence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that that movie seeing people get shot up is, is not, it's 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 yeah because they're so matter of fact about that i think something like that one always wants to say you've seen everything but when people are really casual about their violence um yeah and 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 they are able to because as you said like they are able to regenerate but even so just like running over someone even because you know 100 they they won't die it's i don't know it's it's still running them over (laughs) yeah yeah because they don't deal with the fact like this hurts, right? I mean, right. you do live, but it still hurts. They do say, yeah, there is a point where they say that. I think where I think Charlize's character is basically like, yeah, I'm not going to die, but like it hurts. Right. <laughs> it's still painful. Yeah. Or I think when Kiki is basically like testing out her powers and like she just sticks her hand into a fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And like two, two of the members of the old guard are like, you know, and she jerks it back out because, like, yeah, you'll heal, but like, it still hurts. Yeah, I mean, this is, I guess, the, I guess it gets said about superhero movies generally, or about yeah. any sort of like movie violence without um, any any much apparent like emotional. Or, mm-hmm. uh, I do feel like we're more sensitive about it with women, because I mean, like, how many Marvel movies are there? You know, like, how many times have we seen like? Batman or Superman or whoever like get the shit kicked out of them, you know, mm-hmm. or or Captain America or whoever, you know, and it's but I think the other thing there is like the thing with superhero movies in particular, especially now because like we know we are living sort of in this like golden age of of IP where that's the thing that rules. And so you know like one way or another like none of these characters ever actually like dies permanently. 
right. like they get resurrected in some way or another because like these studios are going to continue to make money off of them and right. you know it sort of just it kind of erases the stakes a little bit yeah yeah I mean, and it, it also kind of underlines how they are property because they'll never right. get a time they have to keep work because yeah. they keep making money these characters so yeah i don't know it's it is a, sort of a warped uh warped landscape but like angelina you know i think the other thing about her is that now the thing that she really built her career on like after gia was playing this series of like gun-toting butt-kicking characters I wouldn't call it feminist, but it was definitely like girl power. Like she wanted to be the badass and she had like a string of those roles and, and Mr. And Mrs. Smith fit right into that. I don't know that now like that would necessarily be received the same way, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I think she would probably be dinged more you know, we would be having more sort of conversations about like the sort of liberation that she is portraying on screen is just a sort of female version of like, you know, white male, violent American imperialism, you know, that sort of like Rambo style dominance, whether that would be like tolerated from her as, as a career path. I'm probably forgetting some movies uh, along those lines, but one of them was Tomb Raider, right? right. Where exactly, she's, she's she's playing like a character that people you know criticize for being this male fantasy of like mm-hmm. female action hero with ridiculous you know proportions for like a teenage you know male gamer or something. Right, because it was a, it was a video game that yeah. got adapted into a movie, right? Yeah, so like stuff like that. I wonder if, in a way, I mean, Charlize Theron has kind of picked up that mantle and Mm -hmm. done something different with it. I feel like she has, yeah, she's definitely picked it up. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, at the time, like, you have this woman who is basically fronting this sort of action-adventure movie, and she gets to be, like, female Indiana Jones. (laughs) Um, right. but but sexy because of course like she's a girl so she has to be sexy right like that's that's the only way the studio is gonna like sign off on this movie but now like so i did not grow up watching the indiana jones films mm-hmm. and so like i the first time i watched them was like as an adult in my 30s and i was just like this is so racist <laughs> i was just like how did everyone just love these movies just unreservedly? <laughs> and so I feel like, you know, there is probably a generation of people, probably Zoomers, you know, who are going to go back and who are going to look at at Angelina's films and be like, lady, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it's like, yeah, kids, I'm sorry. Like the 90s and the 2000s were just filled with tons of cultural appropriation. And and we just didn't think that critically about imperialism and all that shit <laughs> in blockbusters. Which is funny because in real life, she has this, you know, she has done like so much humanitarian work and she works with the United Nations. And 
you know, she's done so much to bring attention to victims, particularly like child victims of genocide and child soldiers. And I don't know, maybe maybe that is her way of sort of of paying some sort of penance for <laughs> for maybe some of those images that she put out earlier in her career. I don't know. She directed I'm forgetting the name of By the Sea. By the Sea. Did you see that? I like Angelica Bastian again, like called it a masterwork. And now I feel like I have to see it because when it came out, like it was just so immediately panned. And I was like, I don't want to see this because I want to keep liking her. (laughs) But now I feel like I should watch it. I should watch it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I just remember watching a trailer. There was just something so sumptuous about it. I couldn't really ignore, but I I didn't, Mm. I never went back to it. And then she did direct a drama, didn't she, two or three years ago about the Cambodian genocide? Yeah. So she did, what'd she do? She did First They Killed My Father. Yeah, that is the one about the Cambodian genocide. And she did... Unbroken. Unbroken. Which was very, like, I remember that being sort of, it felt like a very, like, Clint Eastwoody uh, war film. And she definitely, I think, got her, generated some, some respect for herself like as as a director and she it it seemed like she chose something that was like deliberately serious and challenging she you know she's basically sort of saying with her directorial choices like i'm more than just a pretty face who stole jennifer aniston's husband (laughs) I i look i have a lot of respect for angelina jolie i know she gets she gets shit you know there was that whole era when everybody wanted to make jokes about her like collecting children and everything else but like i you know i i I respect her i i like a lot of her work yeah there's there's a force there to be yeah same with brad honestly i mean you know i think we both like loved once upon a time in hollywood which again is like speaking of like on-screen violence And 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 speaking of stardom too, it's mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like you know Tarantino puts him there because he's one of he can harken back in in some way you know. Oh, absolutely! You know when we talked about it, we were debating whether or not it was a hangout film, but it's just oh yeah, it, so much of it you know is him like driving around Los Angeles, <laughs> and you're just fine just hanging out with him like as he goes about his day yeah he just has this like ease about himself as cliff booth like as this stuntman that just makes that movie such a pleasure to watch i mean i think that also kind of comes through with moneyball i like movies about baseball so much more than i actually like baseball Uh-huh. so much more like what because one of my favorite movies still to this day is bull durham oh yeah i love it i love it so much i want every one of susan sarandon's outfits from that movie <laughs> i <laughs> like the fact that she's just like quoting william blake at this <laughs> at this jock who's just like the hell are you talking about i there are just so many things i love about the movie but with moneyball you know, again, with with Brad, like there's something about the physicality of his performance and the way 
Like, I'm very curious to know if before production, he worked with a personal trainer to actually build a baseball body. Because mm. there is this, there's this moment in the last dance um, where Michael Jordan has like stopped playing baseball and he switched back to playing basketball. And he's talking about how he still has his baseball body. And so he's not able to sort of do the same things that he was when he was just playing basketball. Right. Yeah. Because you just, you just have different physiques for different sports because you're using like your body in different ways and different muscles. And there is something about Brad and the way he just walks the way he carries himself in Moneyball that just makes you believe that he used to play professional baseball. And it comes down to the way that his clothes hang on his body. Mm. And I, yeah, I mean, I really do what I'm like, how did he do that? And it just feels so natural and lived in, but he's created a character. I mean, I, 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 I could totally see him working out in the particular you know way not too much because you know for you maybe if you're a slugger you'll be kind of more right yeah. or something but otherwise a kind of easy athleticism in a way and right and a, and a lope of some sort mm-hmm. and the way people stand in baseball i think mm-hmm. so there's something about stance going on not even the just way they're just- the way they you know when they're warming up for their at bats <laughs> <laughs> And the way they're sort of loosening up their shoulders, like, and their mouths are, they, there's always something in their mouth, whether it's tobacco or chewing gum or boiled peanuts or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's just a whole, there's just a whole sort of like language of like the way you live, like as a baseball player. <laughs> yeah. That's dead on. Like, and maybe this the shifting of the weight, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it makes you just think of like a Western star, like a, a John Wayne, like John Wayne, half of it's yeah. a good acting repertoire, but half of his acting repertoire is shifting his weight. Contrapasso, yes. you know? <laughs> oh, that's so day. true. That's so true. And I feel like that's, that's something in, in, in baseball too. And the waiting. See, now you make me wish that I could like, just go and actually like, because actors are always talking about how costuming just adds a certain something, you know, Mm. like it just, it is the finishing touch on all of the other work that you do. And it's not just because of like what you see when you look at yourself in the mirror, but you know, if you are wearing, let's say cowboy boots and chaps and spurs and you've got you know pistols on each side of you i would Mm -hmm. imagine that's going to affect you know the way you walk and the way you sort of swing your hips you know Mm -hmm. i remember like the first season of mad men like all of the women talked about their particular undergarments because matthew wiener was so particular about everything being like of that period in time um, from the lipstick to, you know, to the makeup, to the hair, to the nail polish, like everything they were using. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also came down to the foundation garments and the way it affected your posture and how you walk so that, you know, and those bullet bras, <laughs> certainly there's a ton of of work that Christina Hendricks is bringing to the character of Joan but that 
the way those garments sort of like hold you in and force you to walk a certain way and like mm. stand up straight a certain way, you know, the same way, like, I don't know if you've ever tried to walk in high heels, Nick, but like <laughs> it, it sort of forces you to stand up straight because of your balance and because your, um, your center of gravity is shifted just ever so slightly and it just affects you're in, you know, the way your entire body moves. I find that sort of minutia like fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it it is, and and then all of that encodes a whole bunch of stuff with it, you know. So like, yeah. everything that went into designing those high heels or designing those the various garments and and the the gaze that goes into that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that about the the Mad Men um, costuming regimen. <laughs> yeah, it was like obsessive. Yeah, since we moved into TV um, with Mad Men. Oh um, yeah, sure. You mentioned that you've been watching. I mean, if you want to talk about it, if you've been watching Lovecraft Country. Yeah, I've I've seen the first five episodes. I'm still debating if I'm going to write anything about it or not. I haven't yet. I think Alison Herman's review um, at The Ringer is the one that sort of like solidly kind of explains the ways that the show works and where it doesn't. And she kind of like broadens that out to look at the other projects, particularly the other TV projects that Jordan Peele has produced. You know, he has definitely sort of cultivated like a brand for himself um, so that, you know, a series that is produced and that has the affiliation or the involvement of Jordan Peele, you know, brings with it like certain expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they also never quite live up to them. Um, I kind of felt I, I definitely felt that way about Hunters, uh, which is the, the Nazi hunting show um, on Amazon Prime. And with Lovecraft Country, so it's got like this gorgeous production design like just beautiful and the same with the costuming like it's just you know overall a joy to look at um I would say aside from the CGI which feels kind of like CW-ish you know once once you actually start getting into like the 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 battles with monsters and whatnot it, it it does feel a little cheap at least, you know, like I said, for the first five episodes that I've seen feels rather uneven. It's ambitious, but it also sort of feels like it's kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. So it's got like all of these like wonderful references, you know, like there's a guy who like moves into this rooming house and he introduces himself and his name is James uh, and he has a dog with him. And so he like this woman like bends over to pet the dog she's like oh who's this and he's like this is baldwin um you know it's got all these sort of like cute little winks to black history you know there's a library that has like a giant portrait of wb du bois hanging in it um and it is very much about sort of the horror and terror of white supremacy um because it's set during the 1950s uh and it's following this character named Atticus <laughs> yet, a, yet another, you know, yet another nod to, to American literature um, who's played by Jonathan majors uh, who I, who I adore, who I just think, you know, I loved him in the five bloods. I loved him in last black man in San Francisco. 
I just, I want him to have like a soaring and wonderful career. I just think he's, you know, you just can't take your eyes off him when he's on screen. And so you have all of these like elements that by themselves are great, you know, like Journey Smollett is so wonderful. Yeah, you've, you know, you've got this great cast because I think you've got Anjanou Ellis, you've got Courtney B. Vance, um, you've got Michael Kenneth Williams. So you've got like a cast that they're all bringing sort of like obvious talents, you know, that we've seen in other things. And it just doesn't feel like the series lives up to sort of the sum of its parts. The whole doesn't live up to the sum of its parts. Yeah. Some of that I think is like, a reliance a too heavy reliance on like genre cliches some of that i think is the characters just need to be built out more um because they just feel too flat and kind of archetypical and the other thing is that like just tonally it's kind of all over the place so like you know sometimes it's action adventure and you kind of feel like jonathan majors is playing you know his own version of indiana jones (laughs) and yet sometimes it's really serious because you're dealing with, you know, like racial terrorism that is rooted in reality um, of American history. And then sometimes, um, you know, I think probably the weakest element might actually be sort of the fantasy parts. Hmm. And so like, I don't want it to get canceled because I think these are things that you can actually kind of, you can work on in the writer's room and develop. Hmm. Um, and make them more sophisticated. But I do think that that needs to happen. Right. It does sound very uh, uh, ambitious and it it just takes a lot of, just a lot of work to just to build a world and a rich world in that way. And I think that's part of it too, um, is that is because it's fantasy and because it's, yeah, the sort of like fantasy horror melange you know, you'd have to spend a bunch of time sort of like setting up the world and like the rules of the world. And I think some of those actually like aren't as well articulated as they should be. But like, so that's obviously going to sort of require a certain level of exposition, mm-hmm. um, which is why I think like once you, you know, once you can sort of like get beyond that and and you sort of have established like what the you know, what the rules of this particular universe are. Um, It'll allow the show to sort of like settle into itself and just be more fun. Um, Mm. Because I think like the thing that I would like to see (laughs) because it's, you know, there are just elements of it that are so obviously ridiculous is if it (laughs) would just sort of like lean into that more and just sort of have fun with like the camp elements of the story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, and it's I, it's hard to do that when you're doing a show um, where racism and racial terrorism factors in so centrally to the storyline and to the themes. Like that is that is a really difficult balance to strike, which is why we say Jordan Peele is a genius for Get Out, <laughs> right? Right. Because um, because it's it's a challenge, but I'm glad to see. Uh, that Misha Green, who is the co-creator of this and who did Underground, you know, I'm glad to see them like taking this on and taking these challenges on. You know, I hope they have the the opportunity and the resources and the support to to build on it. 
um, particularly when you're talking about TV, right? Because it's, you know, at least Get Out is contained. It's it's a film um, and, and trying to accomplish what they're trying to do in a television series means, I think, that unless you were sort of working, you know, unless you were really kind of pumping on all like God level, you know, like God level Damon Lindelof cylinders, uh, you know, it's, it's going to take a little bit and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's kind of a big ship to launch, a big, a big endeavor to, to yeah. get that, to get that going. Yeah. But the beauty of TV when it works the way it's supposed to is that, you know, you get to come back another season and, and retool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do some course, course correction. But yeah, the costuming, I think, man, if I didn't do anything else, I think I'll probably either end up like trying to reach out to the production designer or the costume designer, because it oh, cool. really is just gorgeous. That seems like a good place. I mean, almost to express the Lovecrafty yes. fervor, you know? Because mm-hmm. there's something about um, Lovecraft. I, I, I have to admit, I have no idea <laughs> what the storyline of the show is. Just in terms of Lovecraft's writing, I'm always fascinated when anyone in any way is 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 you know working with it because it's so baroque. Yeah, and it's it's like piecing picking up a piece of fabric and you're like, oh, that's a cool shade of of green or something, and you look at it and you look at it closer and it's and you realize there's and like, you're like wait. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's a whole world just like swirling in there. Uh-huh. That's, that's kind of like any given sentence in, in, in Love, Love Craft. So that, that's Paisley. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Paisley, where you're writing those little paramecium or something, you know, it's just, yeah. Um, that's the kind of fervor. But yeah, I mean, I, could, I also see how that would be hard to, you know, navigate along with very real and very immediate and urgent you know issues um you know again like i applaud the the ambition like behind that particularly you know because we know that like hp lovecraft was such a virulent racist and so to be like hey we're gonna take this show that is that is based on a novel called lovecraft country uh you know and has the man's name in it (laughs) and then uh and then use this to like explore the various sort of ways that american racism is terrifying um i mean yeah that makes complete sense to me (laughs) so you know that idea of of taking something that has been sort of so that's foundational um and also like extremely hateful racist white supremacist um and trying to to really sort of do a full 180 with it, um, I absolutely respect. It is also very, very difficult to like to pull off completely. <laughs> you know, um, it's it's hard. Um, this is probably where we would talk a little about antebellum. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but, uh, we, 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 Should we like leave that as a teaser? <laughs> yeah. Let's let's leave that as a teaser. <laughs> um, yeah, we can, we can uh, come on again and, and talk about that. So Antebellum is coming out like September 18th. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the filmmakers have definitely said, um, you know, when I when I went to a screening like way back in the before time, like in the spring. <laughs> oh, <cool>. um, <laughs> 
uh, they were there. Um, and they, you know, they said that they had sort of like deliberately decided to shoot the film with the camera lenses that were used to shoot Gone with the Wind. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and again, like it's it's one of those like horror thrillers that is also about race and racism in America. Um, so yeah, it's definitely up the same alley. So I'm I'm looking forward to to us discussing that, you know, as it gets closer to to its release. Yeah, and also, you know, one of, one of many uh, you know movies and shows and, and songs that so much has happened since since the spring as well, um, and and just seeing how that. Yeah, yeah. So so many rich veins for discussion for us, man. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about. Um, I'm so but... glad. <laughs> it's always so fun talking about this stuff with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, it's great talking with you too. Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, I, I yeah, and, and you know, I really, I really appreciate it too because, um, you know. I, I just, you have a prodigious output. So I know you're very, you have a lot of writing you're doing. So um, I, I appreciate your, your coming on. Uh, what's, I, I just always like to point uh, listeners to something uh, recent or upcoming that. Um, so for those who don't know, because we've spent all this time talking about film and television, I also write about theater. Um, yes. And uh, <laughs> even though, you know, like Broadway is basically shuttered like through 2020, um, I, the last, you know, a piece that I did recently, um, for the undefeated, uh, is called how to get more black on Broadway. And it's basically about, uh, the sort of racial reckoning that has been happening, you know, as there's been this sort of massive racial reckoning that's happening in America in the wake of, you know, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, where you have all of these institutions that are sort of re-examining the ways that they are sort of complicit in perpetuating structural racism, you know? And so basically it's sort of looking at Broadway as an institution um, and what it has done historically and how that's affected theater makers of color and, um, and what it can do going forward to to get better and sort of and and redress those inequities. Yeah, this is a vital piece, and it's a. I mean, it's a great thing to read I, this time. As you said, like things aren't going to be back until the new new year, so it's kind of like let's do something with this right. time. Yeah, right. We've got you know? time to sort of like think about things, you know, and yeah. and kind of like pause and and be more contemplative than than we normally do. Um, you know, that's sort of been the gift and the curse of this pandemic. Right. It's it's a once in a century sort of occurrence. So we might as well, you know, take a look and, and figure out what we can do. Yeah. Sorry, it's it's kind of uncanny. But while we're talking about potential for change and the need for change, I believe there there are there's actually a line. Um, there's actually, I think, a barge that just has come down my street. How about um, that? Yeah, so it's it's kind of amazing that right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love New York. <laughs> I know it's great. It's like literally this is a this is a part of this is a part of life. Uh, and um, I, I'm actually I'm kind of curious. I want to go see what that is now. Right. I, I know. I'm like, is it a post office march? Is it a Black Lives Matter march? Like, I who knows at this point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're uh, God <laughs> so much. 
So Ooh, dystopia. Yay. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy. Um, all right. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll talk it soon. We obviously already have our, our set list for next time, basically. So we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get together again. Talk, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks so much, Nick.